question now is how to apply what we've been doing for the last nine days to our lives outside of the retreat center. And there's one understanding that's fundamental to the integration of Dharma in our lives. (coughs) And it's the one that is most frequently forgotten or misperceived. And that's the understanding, the deep recognition that there is no fundamental difference whatsoever between sitting in this hall and walking down the streets of New York or Boston or Michigan or wherever. That our life is not separated into packets, into discrete segments, some of which are spiritual and some of which aren't. Our life is the unfolding of a certain process. And this process unfolds through a variety of different forms. The form of sitting, sitting quietly. The form of relationship, the form of work. The form of going inward, of going outward. Of being in solitude, of being in crowds. The process is of a peace. And so the same understanding and the same principles and the same laws apply wherever we may happen to be. Even though we can hear that now, you're sitting and the mind is somewhat quiet, you've been looking inward for nine days, this is the hardest principle to remember and to work with when people leave and get involved in the form of busyness. But it's absolutely essential because otherwise most of our lives become one thing and our Dharma practice becomes one little part of it and there's no wholeness, there's no unity. There's a real sense of fragmentation. to pay attention in a careful way in all the different forms that our life dances through, to pay attention to the fact that things are continually changing. And in some ways you can see that extremely clearly, you know, in our relationship life or working life. If we pay attention and Sometimes it's very obvious, sometimes it's hitting us over the head that things are changing and that if we try to hold on or try to fix or try to make something static, we suffer. To see the possibility of letting go of the attachment, letting go of the clinging, coming to the end of that suffering. In so many situations in our lives, the Four Noble Truths is laid out right in front of us. So to 
to try and keep this understanding that the Dharma is the totality of our lives. It's not just one part and it's not restricted to a particular form. And that's what imbues our life process with a sense of meaning, with a sense of understanding. In one of the discussion groups, I was talking about the sense that I get sometimes of observing you know, life swirling about And the sense often of the circularity of our existence. You know, we get up in the morning, and we have our breakfast, we go to work, and we come back from work, and we have dinner, and go to the movies, and go to sleep, and get up the next morning, and have breakfast, and go to work, and come back from work, and have dinner, and read a book, you know, and go to sleep. And just day after day after day, our lives very often seem to be just going in this endless circular process. Don't seem to be going anyplace. What Dharma practice can do is to give a sense of direction in one's life. And it's not the direction of going anyplace or doing anything different. Rather, it's a direction of understanding. But when we have that context of understanding, when we're working with that understanding, then the very daily, ongoing events of our lives begin to take on some meaning. We find that we can actually learn from the circumstances of our lives and deepen our understanding rather than this endless circular process. So how to do it? It sounds like it might be a nice idea. The question is how actually to bring this quality of attentiveness and investigation and understanding that the Dharma is not limited to a particular form or a particular place. How to make that alive for you when you leave here and get re-involved. The single most important thing that you can do is to establish a strong, unwavering commitment to a daily sitting practice. It's essential to take time every day and to sit down and to be quiet and to recultivate the quality of a careful attention and a concentrated mind. It's the foundation, it's the basis for then carrying that sense of attention and investigation into the rest of the day's activities. It's essential to sit every day. And you think after being on retreat that sitting every day 
once a day, twice a day is going to be easy. It's not. It's amazingly difficult, considering how much we've been sitting here and how you've managed to settle into the routine and do it with commitment and perseverance. It's amazing how difficult it is to sustain the daily sitting practice. The pulls of the world on the mind are enormous. And it's so easy just to get carried away, caught up in all the things we have to do and the people we have to speak to and all the busyness of our lives. You have to establish a strong commitment in your mind to arrange the day around the sitting practice. And each of you can find the appropriate times to do it. One good time is to sit as soon as you wake up in the morning. You wake up and you sit. Before the world has a chance to distract the mind too much. You get it in and it establishes it establishes a quality of openness and sensitivity and receptivity for the rest of the day. If you sit again in the evening, it's a way of cooling out a little bit from the accumulation of the day. Now, you've noticed, I'm sure, the accumulation of tension and tightness and holding in the mind and the body during the retreat. It's because we're not processing out you know, the, the tension and knots that we accumulate in our lives. Sitting in the evening, before you go to sleep or, or whenever is a convenient time, is a way of letting go, of releasing a lot of the day's holding. Often people ask how often they should sit, how many times a day, how long. You really have to experiment and find out for yourself. As a general rule or principle, sitting for periods of 45 minutes to an hour at a time seem to be workable, both in terms of what people uh, can take to sit and also in terms of giving the mind a chance to quiet down a little bit. You know, if you sit for just 20 minutes or half an hour, you may find that it takes almost that whole time for the mind to get a little quiet, and then you get up. Because if you sit a little bit longer, you have a chance to actually deepen your understanding once the mind has reached a certain level of calm. How many times a day to sit? One time a day is survival. It's, it's absolute survival. Without an hour a day, I don't know how people make it. Twice a day is maintenance. You really maintain your practice. And also, there's a deepening involved. More than twice a day, if, if you can, and it's hard for many people, but depending on your circumstances, if you can sit three times a day or more, it's great. But I'd, I'd aim as best you can for twice. And not, not let anything get in the way of once a day. One little 
helpful clue with regard to relating to your daily sitting practice. Don't judge your sitting because you will go through just the whole range of mind states with it. And for the most part, you're not going to sustain the same level of concentration and attentiveness as you have on retreat. Because here the environment is very protected and there's a continuity to your practice and it builds in a pretty powerful way. When you're home, and there's a lot of activity and a lot of interaction, you may find that some days you sit and your mind is thinking for the entire hour, unlike how it's been here. (laughs) Well, the thoughts may be louder. They, They undoubtedly will be louder. Don't judge your practice. Put in your time. Sometimes it's necessary. If there's been a strong accumulation of reaction and emotion and and interaction, sometimes just allowing that space for the mind to discharge, discharge the thoughts, discharge the images, the bodily sensations, that's what's important. Try to work with a sense of quality, attention to what's happening rather than judging what it is that's happening. Sometimes it'll be nice and calm and quiet and concentrated and focused and sometimes your mind will be thinking and planning and whatever. Pay attention to whatever it is without adding a judgment to it. And in that way, you'll find that you have a sustained energy and a sustained commitment to continuing the sitting practice. It is the single most important thing to, to work with. And you'll find that the power of the sitting practice then begins to spread out and permeate the rest of the day's activities. Another extremely useful and helpful practice to do as you leave is paying attention to the body and body movements. Mindfulness of the body. It's the first of the four foundations of mindfulness that the Buddha talked of. The body is an easy object to be with. It's not particularly subtle, you know, in its and it's obvious manifestation. When you're walking down the street, pay attention to the movement. You don't have to walk down the street lifting, moving, <laughs> placing. You know, but you can just be walking at a, at a very normal pace and instead of the mind, you know, thinking and planning and wondering and anxious or whatever, just to be in your body and feel, you know, each step and the touch of your feet on the on the ground. And by practicing that, by practicing settling back into the body, you find that it's a very effective way of staying grounded in the moment, of actually staying present. Don't neglect the simple things. 
you know, making a cup of tea or coffee and drinking it, opening a door, taking a shower, putting your clothes on, sitting in a chair. If you stay in your body and simply feel the very simplest things, and you feel the, the pressure of your body against the chair, against the floor, that simple awareness of bodily sensation, bodily contact, you'll find will give you tremendous stability, tremendous presence of mind. It's a grounding. The tendency of our energy is to go up and out. You know, and we just get we get pulled out through the sense doors, through through sights and sounds, through thoughts. Coming back into ourselves, back into the body, into the moment. It's not hard to do. It's hard to remember to do. So this is just some seeds of reminding. Working with the sitting practice, working with mindfulness of the body. One, one thing also you could experiment with if you have the time and place to do it. People have found it extremely helpful. To do the walking meditation, even for five or ten minutes before you do your sitting. You know, just, to, just in your room, and it can be just a very short distance back and forth, to take a few minutes to do the slow walking before you sit, I think you'll find that it enhances the quality of the sitting because the, those five or ten minutes of walking meditation will collect your mind. And it's the movement of the body is easy to pay attention to. And it'll bring the mind in and focus it so that when you go to sit, you're already somewhat focused, somewhat concentrated. I think you'll find that it very much changes the quality of your sitting. So again, if you have the opportunity to do that, I think it would be helpful. One little trick in terms of learning how to pay attention through the day to everything we're doing. Once a week, pick one little activity that you're going to undertake the discipline to be very mindful of. Maybe the first week you leave here, you take the discipline, brushing my teeth. I'm going to really pay attention when I brush my teeth. And you practice that. Every time you brush your teeth, it's a reminder for that kind of, of awareness. In the second week, take something else. And you're reaching for doors. Every time you reach for a door, you're going to do it very mindfully. The third week could be, you know, every time you stand from sitting. If every week you pick one little thing, a common activity that you do anyway, and that you're just going to make the effort to really pay attention to, in a few months, you're going to be very mindful. All these things will start adding up. 
You know, and you'll find that through the day you're mindful to a lot of different things. Simple things, not complicated. Keep in mind that what the practice means, what we're practicing, is to be present. You know, you've heard a lot of talks and a lot of the theory and a lot of the elaboration of the kinds of insights and philosophy and all that. And it can be helpful for some of you, perhaps, to set a context for it. But the actual practice, what we keep on coming back to, is the practice to be attentive in the moment. That is not limited to any particular place or any particular activity. As you practice coming back to the moment over and over again, to the simple things, to the simple bodily sensations, to the simple movements, you'll find that our life becomes very grounded, very simple. Because the power of living in the moment has the power to cut through the complication and complexity and confusion of our thought-created worlds. And so working with these weekly disciplines, I think, will just be another added little energizer to this effort to be present. There are some other areas to look at which also mm, bring the bring the taste and the nutrition of the Dharma into our lives. And one of these areas is working with the precepts. That is not killing and not stealing, not committing sexual misconduct, not lying, and not taking things which cloud the mind or make it, make it contracted or heavy or ignorant, deluded. They are tremendously powerful. And they work on so many different levels. They work to restrain unwholesome mind states and unwholesome activities. So that instead of cultivating strong desire or strong anger, strong aversion, working with the precepts helps to restrain that outward unwholesome energy. And so we preserve our strength, we preserve our integrity. Now, one experiment I did actually I'll mention two to you that, that I worked with and I found very illuminating. One was after I came back from the Peace Corps, having had my first hit of the Dharma in practice, came back and I was living at home for a while with 
my family. It was summertime and there were a lot of flies in the house. And my grandmother was there with the fly swatter, you know, going around knocking them off. And I said, I'll take care of it. You know, don't kill them. Well, some people are very good at just, you know, like that, catching it with their hands. I wasn't that agile. And so what I would do is, you know, go around every time a fly landed, I'd take a glass and <laughs> try to get the glass over the fly and slip a piece of paper and take it out. It took me hours <laughs> to clear the house of the flies. But working with not killing establishes a different connection to all other life forms. Now, instead of minimizing the value of life, just because something happens to be small or annoying, we really get connected with the essential oneness, the essential unity. It's the same life force, you know, in us, in, in a mosquito, and in a fly, and whatever. It has different forms, and the forms limit the expression, but the life creativity is the same. And we forget that so often. We become very uh, species-oriented. And it really opens up our heart, opens up the interconnectedness of things. When we begin to work in a very direct way with a reverence towards life, not harming, that changes the quality of our mind, it changes the quality of our hearts. Another precept that I worked with, which had amazing results, it had to do with the precept of right speech. And it's usually said as not lying, but it has a much broader connotation. Although the commitment to honesty is, is really important. If you happen to find yourself having told a lie, Pay attention to what that does to the mind. Just without judgment, and it's not—it's not a self-judgment. It's not, you know, coming down heavy. It's just to investigate exactly what happens. And I think you'll see how disturbing it is, how how disharmonious it is. A broader application of that uh, precept, the one that I worked with, had to do with uh, a resolve that I took for some time not to speak about any third person. I wasn't going to speak to somebody about somebody else. No gossip. Not at all. Not, Not good things, not bad things. If I had something to say to someone, I would say it to them, not about them, to somebody else. 90% of my speech was eliminated. (laughs) It was amazing. And just to see how much of our energy and our speech energy is enormous, which is also something else to pay attention to and to work with, we talk a lot, you know, through the day to a lot of different people, and we don't very often pay attention to how we're using that energy to how it's affecting us, to how it's affecting other people. 
when I stopped talking about third persons, <laughs> this overwhelming majority of my, my speech was ended. So I got very quiet, <laughs> yeah, which was nice. It was nice for a change, just to, just to be quiet. Even more helpful than that was to see the effect on the thought process. And that is, as I stopped that kind of talking, I found that my mind was judging less because it wasn't giving expression, wasn't feeding or cultivating the judgment through the energy of speech. So I found that after a while, it just stopped doing it so much. So all these judgments which keep coming in the mind got less and less. As I stopped judging others, you know, to, to some degree, found that the mind stopped judging myself so much. It's like that whole mental conditioning started to weaken. And it was a very illuminating lesson in how our actions strengthen and recondition the mind state behind them.
thought behind the speech. When we work on the speech end of things and learn to harmonize that, it works backwards to harmonize the thought process more. These are ways of working. Each of you can play with it. Do it in a creative way. It's not... They're not commandments, you know, and it's not kind of coming down with a moralistic sense. It's much more a sense of exploration and investigation. See what's going on. You know, pay attention to how our actions affect other people, affect our own minds. And just having the precepts as a guideline or a framework will give you um, ways of working. Consider it. Work with it because it's tremendously empowering. Another big area to pay attention to, one that's so important in our lives, is the area of communication. Really, that's what we're doing in our interpersonal relationships is establishing different levels of communication. It's so important. Pay attention to that. Become mindful of the ways and the the skillful means of communicating. I'll give you an example within the context of our Dharma practice of ways of paying attention, but it's applicable in any context. Suppose you leave here and you go back to your family or friends and say, well, how was it? How are you going to respond to that? (laughs) If you have a kind of set response, probably 90% of the time you're going to be missing. You're not going to be connecting. Because the question, well, how was it, can come from a thousand different places. You know, it it can be a way of saying, hello, I'm glad you're back. Let's go have a cup of, a cup of coffee. Not really being interested at all. You know, on one extreme, to the other extreme of somebody who really wants to know what your experience was about and everything in between. Somebody says, well, how was the retreat? And they're not really interested. They're just acknowledging that you've returned. For you to give a two-hour rap <laughs> is going to be totally inappropriate. Or you go back and, you know, especially with, I don't know, your parents, your children, your husbands or wives, whatever, and you start telling them about how there's no self and there's no I and there's no me and there's no you, again, it's probably not going to work. <laughs> you have to be sensitive. You have to be really sensitive to where the other person is coming from. And what that means is, that we have to listen. And so you see that in the process of communication, it's really the same process that we've been cultivating here, learning how to listen. Here we've been doing it to our own experience, to our minds, to our bodies. 
It's the same quality of listening when we're with other people. Just to be quiet enough and to be settled back enough to get a sense of where they're coming from, what they're interested in, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. And it's just so interesting. It's one of my great delights. Just to be with people and to see if I can feel a way into their minds. And it takes that kind of delicacy where we're not just throwing out a particular set you know, package of thoughts or ideas or opinions, but a real sensitivity to what's going to connect. And it just, it establishes a relationship between people. Keep in mind that there are many ways of communication, speech being just one of them. There's communication that happens through our bodies. There's communication that happens just by being present with people. The strongest communication, and one which often we don't pay that much attention to, is the communication that comes through the way we are. We don't have to say anything, and we don't have to do anything special. How we're manifesting is what's going to be communicated to people. And so we can have the clearest rap in the world, you know, about awareness and non-judgmental and accepting and allowing and soft and, you know, on and on. And if we're living our lives uptight and tense and judgmental and angry, the words aren't going to mean much. And so really trusting that very fundamental level of communication that comes from our way of being. That's the basis of all the others. Paying attention to how we communicate, it's extremely interesting and it makes for more connectedness and more harmony and more heart connection between people. A couple of other areas. One that is almost always overlooked in terms of deepening our practice. And I think that in some ways it's the most fruitful place to work. It's the juiciest. And that is to pay attention to times of difficulty. When we're in a difficult situation, when we find ourselves getting uptight or angry or reactive or tense or off balance in some way or grasping, that is exactly the time to explore and look to see what's going on. So if you find yourself in some situation, as we do, and it happens a lot in relationships, in our intimate relationships, it happens in work, school, a lot of different areas. When you find that the mind has just lost its balance, instead of blaming the other person or blaming the situation or blaming oneself, which is not fruitful at all, rather Let that be a signal. That's a feedback to us 
that there's some place that we're either holding on or we're, or we're resisting. It's like we've come to the boundary, to the edge of what we're comfortable with. And we all have this range or limit of experience, comfortable with this much, and anything more than that is just, we get thrown off balance. When we're at that edge, that's the interesting place to look. Because that's exactly the place where the next level of opening can happen. And so when there's this difficulty or frustration or tension, investigate to see what it is that's going on. Uh, One little example that came up for me in my practice, there are thousands of life situations like it. This one happened while I was practicing in India with Manindraji. And the practice was getting deep, and the mind was getting very still and concentrated, and it was wonderful, real blissful sittings. And I'd sit for a long time, you know, for several hours at a time. And we went through one period where Manindraji had the habit of bringing over every Western traveler who came through Bodh Gaya to meet Joseph. You know, and Bodh Gaya was on, it was on the, on the travel route. So a lot of people, you know, kept coming through. And everyone who came through, Manindraji would come, come, let's talk to Joseph. And I would get so irritated. You know, because there was just this, you know, ridiculous conversation about, you know, where you're coming from, where you're going. And I just wanted to sit because my mind was getting so peaceful and quiet. It got to a point where every time I'd hear Manindra coming, you know, just, this is my teacher, you know. I said, please don't be coming to see me. And I, I would just get really irritated. In retrospect, and it took a while to see it, I became really grateful. Because that pushed my buttons. That brought me right to the edge. I was fine being nice and quiet and peaceful. I wasn't fine having that disturbed. That's not freedom. You know, if, if we can only be okay with conditions that are pleasant and agreeable and quiet, that's not freedom at all. That's, that's establishing this little prison for ourselves. Freedom means being able to go from a deep, quiet sitting to getting up and saying what you have to say and coming back to your sitting without the mind wavering. Just responding to each situation as it comes. To see that difficulty pointed very clearly to places that I was holding, places that I was attached to. In our lives, take a look. When you're feeling annoyed, irritated, angry, frustrated, fearful, whatever it is, keep in mind that that's the place to explore. That's the edge. And by looking at it and softening to it and allowing we begin to open up. We open up our limitations. We make our, our sphere of acceptable experience wider and wider and wider until there are no limits and no boundaries. And that's what 
That's what real freedom is. When we don't pull back from anything. Okay, so working with your sitting practice, keeping mindful of the body, really being present, you know, with the simple, the simple aspects of bodily experience, just touching sensations. Working with the precepts, (coughs) paying attention to areas of communication, working with times of difficulty. The last thing is just the support that we can all give to one another as a sangha, as a community of people. If it's possible, you know, when you're living in an area where other people are sitting, it's very helpful and supportive to get together and sit maybe once a week, in a weekly group sitting. It's hard. It's hard to sustain this quality of awareness because our culture is not generally supportive of it. You know, most of the message that we get is the more you get and the more you have and the more you buy and the bigger and the better, that's how you'll be happy. That's what's coming to us a lot, you know. And it's a very small group of people who are beginning to question that and to see that that is not so accurate and that there's another way. Giving one another support is tremendously inspiring and helpful. It begins then to form a basis for, for touching other people as well. So try and make contact. And if there's not a, if there's not a group sitting you know, where, where you're living, start one. Um, invite people to come and sit with you. Not to watch you sit. But <laughs> 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 you know, it's very simple. It would be very simple just to explain the simple uh, exercise of breathing. It doesn't have to be complicated. And, and it can really start people you know, on, on this journey of exploration. Do you have any questions? Is there danger when you're inviting somebody like that, that person might develop problems in his meditations and you might be confident enough to advise him? There is that, there is that um, concern. I think that if it's kept very simple, and you speak from a place of experience rather than theory, I think you'll be fine. To have people, and especially if they're, you know, you start with short sittings, just to explain how to be with the breath, I don't think you'll find problems. If you do, and you find that it's outside of your scope of experience, just to say so. You know, and mostly the the difficulties that come up in practice for which a lot of experience is needed happens when people start doing intensive practice. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you really start penetrating and delving into the mind. But the establishment of a simple daily sitting practice of working with the breath or bodily sensations, <coughs> there shouldn't be a problem. And I have another question. Okay. Can we call it up if there is any kind of dramatic development? Or <laughs> <laughs> you can call me up. <laughs> it may be hard to find out where I am. 
because I'm on the move a lot, but you certainly, you can, the center is like home base, even though I'm, I'm, they would generally know where I am. Think it's a good idea to start with your tapes. Yeah, yeah, you could do that. You see, you see how simple the practice is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not complicated. (laughs) Sit down and pay attention to your experience. As I say, the difficulties that arise for people generally happen when you get into an intensive environment, and we don't encourage people to start, you know, to do a ten-day course and then go out and start leading workshops or retreats. But in terms of sharing the practice and sharing the fundamentals of Dharma, it's, it's really a very open-handed practice. It's not something closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we start here immediately on the program with a sitting with an hour, 45 minutes, uh, you just mentioned beginning with people to whom this would be entirely new for a short period. What would you mean by that? You could start with 15 minutes, 20 minutes. You know. And again, there's, there's no formula. You really have to learn how to listen. Listen in terms of tuning into what seems appropriate to a particular person or group of people. Um, it doesn't take long. It's quite amazing and inspiring to see how quickly people can extend the time of their sitting. You know, in the first time or two, 15 minutes might seem like forever very quickly people get into being able to sit for half an hour, 40 minutes. Doesn't kill him? No. It's called the red tail. I'm from Louisiana originally, but I know it's rich land. They go in there, and they're in there, and you can jump on that side and then kill them. He said to kill them, but the same comes on now, move with the Ubuntu every time you kill them. <laughs> <laughs> and then that's good for their karma. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy. And you know, I, in India, I also was really struggling with that because the places we were living were just filled with insects. You know, spiders and scorpions and all kinds of creepy crawlies. Um, do the best you can. You know, be as conscious as you can. And I've lived in New York, so I know I know the situation. Uh, what I did in Burma with them, there were fifteen or twenty in my room all the time. And it forced me to try to remove the conditions of why they were there. So the room became impeccably clean. Still, it cut it only down to about 10. 
what I did was like feeding the cats or the mice. I put a, a little bowl of food in the very corner where I knew they were coming in. And it usually kept them isolated to that one corner. <laughs> I feed them instead. Great. You know, one one of the things that we don't we don't so much think of in the West is the possibility of coexistence. <laughs> Can't handle it, huh? Roaches are actually quite clean. Oh, good. Yeah, they don't have to be You know, the number of particular uh, situations are are endless. And so, the principle is to bring as much wisdom and compassion as possible to each one and make the decision based on that. You know, again, it's not to be seen as a commandment. The precepts are training rules to learn about the mind and why we're doing things to really look at the motive behind the action. Is it done out of aversion? Is it done out of compassion? Related issue is how do you weed a garden since all plants are living beings, not just the ones we want to cultivate? In the Buddhist tradition, um, there's a distinction drawn between sentient life and non-sentient life. Um, And I know that all life forms uh, respond to to stimuli. And I know know, all the experiments with the plants and stuff. Um, It doesn't necessarily imply that there's consciousness involved. It means there's life life force and and responsiveness. And so the Buddha talk stressed, right, the the uh, restraint from killing uh, sentient beings or conscious conscious life forms. I've thought about that a lot and when you get down the the chain, it certainly gets questionable, you know. Again, we do the best we can. You know, you, you just do look at your activities and see what the motive is in the mind, and you try to act with as much skill and compassion as possible. So it's not it, it's not something to get hung up about. It's something to pay attention to, right? Yes, some of you may have gotten, especially those people who have been here before, information about Manindra Sent in Bodhgaya. We had undertaken a fundraising uh, program to help complete it as a place where he would do a long 
a long-term teacher training program. A fair amount of money was raised and uh, quite a nice building was completed there. Uh, quite comfortable and together. Some problems arose. Uh, administratively and politically within some of the other people at the center. And this last year, it got pretty difficult. And Manindra found it, there was a lot of interference with his teaching at the center. Um, and we were very, we were very concerned about it because people had gone you know, to study with him there. What we're trying to do is kind of a two-pronged um, strategy with regard to it. One is we're, we're trying to communicate with the, the board of directors of the center. It's people in Calcutta and different places who have the ultimate responsibility for it to try to work it out. Um, the person who, who had put the most energy into, into actually building it was the general secretary of it, proved to be very, extremely difficult to work with. So it's not, it's not an easy situation. While we're doing that, while we're trying to straighten that out, the interim plan was for uh, Munindra to start doing this program next year in the States and to just to get some small center where maybe 10 or 15 people who want to commit to a longer time training uh, of both study and practice together uh, could be with him. And that seemed, instead of postponing it until you know the, the situation in India gets worked out, we thought to start it here and then if it does get settled to just move it back to India. So that's, that's where that is. One of the things that Munindra told me early on in my study with him, which saved me so much grief, <laughs> I think it's one of the most helpful things in terms of application of Dharma. He said, you can't take responsibility for other people's minds. You can take responsibility for your own. Right? It's so true. I mean, we can be supportive and encouraging and enlightening and whatever, you know, provide that environment. But people have their own conditioning, their own beliefs and their own mindsets. And we can't take responsibility for another person's mind. We can take responsibility for relating to it in as skillful a way as possible. And so in those situations, I think that that the highest thing we can do is to bring to an unskillful environment some degree of sensitivity and wisdom and awareness. And it's not easy. 
But if we don't do it, who's going to do it? You also have to see, though, what your limits are, because people get burned out. You know, in very difficult situations, people go in with a lot of good intention and good motivation to try to, you know, effect some some quality of change. Often those situations are very demanding. Uh, I know uh, one friend of of ours. He's he's a lawyer who represents uh, the legal rights of mental patients in the state hospital. And he says that he basically deals with people, not, not the people in the hospital, the, the administration, who scream at him. <laughs> you know, there's that level of, of anger and ill will and, and um, intensity. But it's tremendously beautiful work to <laughs> if, if, the, if there's the strength to do it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.